those of you who looked ahead this week or those of you who are familiar with uh, the way that Matthew is outlined, you may be wondering, what in the world are we going to be doing with a list of names? This would be about as exciting as reading through the old telephone books. I hope to exceed that expectation, uh, but even more to help us to recognize uh, and be reminded and to recognize the the tremendous blessings that we have uh, because of God's gift to us in Christ. And even in the midst of this list, uh, there is a powerful message for us to consider and to ponder. Matthew chapter 1, we'll be reading beginning in verse 1 through verse 17. Hear the word of our God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, uh, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiah the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of our God. Almost every fairy tale begins with these words, once upon a time. But the story of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with a genealogy. And that's because in a fairy tale, it doesn't really matter whether a story ever took place or when it took place. It only matters whether the hearer resonates with the story and is able to identify uh, with the, the message uh, that the, the story and gives and, and benefits from, from whatever the point of the story is. But for Christianity... The benefits of the gospel are inseparably linked to datable, verifiable historical events and personal narratives. In other words, if everything that we read in this book is not true, then none of it is worth anything, no matter how good you may feel. Ultimately, it doesn't matter 
one bit. It's essential that it's true for us to gain true benefits, things that are lasting, things that can bring true, true change. Now, if you know anything about the names of the list that we just ran through rather quickly, if you know anything about their stories, you may be tempted to think, what good could possibly come from people like this? You see, this list contains really a, a snapshot, a portrait of all of, of humanity. You have significant and insignificant. You have great, you have small. You have heroes, you have cowards. You have pure and you have family hookers. Um, all in this list of here, you have those who are good and those who aren't good by any measure. And yet they are all brought together here. But one of the things that's important for us to recognize this is their lives themselves mean about as much today as, let's just say, your knowledge of all of these people. Now, that might seem a little bit strange because the first thing you might say is, I don't know anything more. Most, if any of these people, that's my point. You see, we have this list of people here, and if you know anything about them, particularly their brokenness, even the best of them have significantly flawed characters. We would wonder what good could possibly come from this. And the answer, though, is we find in words in verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. See, all of their lives were essentially trivial and ultimately meaningless, except for this statement of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, I know in the text that it's directly attached to, to Mary and, and to Joseph, but the whole point of a genealogy is to say, where did Mary and Joseph come from? And then it's tracing the line, at least Matthew does, uh, back through David and all the way back to, back to, to Abraham. And so the point of it is not just the immediacy of that Christ was born to Mary and to Joseph, but born to all of these people. It's a, it's a chronicle of the, of the line that God used to bring about in time and place, in real history, the promised birth of the Messiah King. And because he was born to them, all of their lives, the good, the bad, uh, the significant, the seemingly insignificant, that which you know about and that which you don't know about, that's what we're not even told. It is that specific thing that gives meaning to their lives. It is by that that eternally they are identified because it's to them, through them, that Jesus was born. He who is called the Christ. It's an incredible thing to consider. That one little phrase gives that meaning. That one little phrase identifies them. And it gives meaning to all of the, the brokenness and all of the dysfunction that is found even in Jesus' family tree. Because the, the story of Christmas is that is into that brokenness, into the to those sinful sometimes fickle people that God sent Jesus through whom 
he would bless the earth. Because Jesus not only was born into that, he took that nature, he took that that brokenness upon himself. He took the, the guilt of the, the sin that all of those listed there and all of us who are here today that have, he took that upon himself, radically identifying with us in order that he would set us free from our own devices and our own actions and our own failures. He takes all of that somehow. God takes all of that and he brings it together through the lines of broken branches in the family tree and then weaves that all together as a as a beautiful tapestry of God's grace. And then he takes the tapestry of grace and he hangs it above the names of these people like a banner and says, through these people, I will bring the one who will make all things right. Through these people, I will bring the one who will make all things new. Now this morning, again, I am mindful of the time, and so I I want to not... For those of you who are worried, give a biographical history of everybody that we just talked about, that was just listed here. For those of you who are worried about that, we're not going to do that today. I'll let Camper do that next week. No, um, that's yes. But I want us to look through the rubble of the broken lives that are listed here. And even through the rubble of our own brokenness. To the hope that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who we celebrate in this Advent season. Now, to experience the hope that is here, you know, amongst the the, the list of these names, it's necessary that we come to some understanding of the identity of the one Matthew is writing about, as he's introducing here, Jesus, the, the one who is called the Christ. And there are several ways that we could divide this, uh, this, uh, that, uh, you know, Jesus' identity is, is revealed within this text. Uh, for instance, the word Christ, you know, means the, the anointed one or, or the Messiah. But I want to focus on two phrases that are found in, in verse one, two, two names that would be easy to just kind of launch past because you've got this long list of names. Uh, son of David and son of Abraham. Now, both David and Abraham are significant in this because Matthew is tracing his lineage back to those through of uh, Jesus through the lines of those two particular men and, and, and their families, and so they are historic people, uh, and they're important for their own contributions. They're important because they are part of the line of Christ. But the the idea here that is introduced in, in verse one, son of David son of Abraham, is more than just simply saying these guys will be included in, in the in the genealogy that we're going to look at. It's more than just saying even that we're, we're tracing it through to the promises uh, that were in them. They are both titles that were assigned to the promised Messiah. And so Matthew, writing for primarily a, a Jewish audience, is using titles that would have been recognized as uh, indicators of the coming of the Messiah, one of which was son of David, the other one which is son of Abraham. Now, son of David reveals to us that is the arrival of the long-expected king. See, during David's reign, the Lord spoke to him, and Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 15, records God's promise to him. 
when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. My love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So it's an incredible promise that God is making with David, that one of his ancestors would reign on the throne of Israel forever. Now, the people who came after this promise, the people who were thinking about what God had promised and before the birth of Christ, a lot of time had come and gone. In fact, not only had David's people been dethroned from at least part of the kingdom, thrown a part of the kingdom because the kingdom had divided, but both the kingdom that left split from them, um, that continued to be called Israel, they had been sent into exile. No one knows quite where they were scattered. And then even Judah, the remnant of the kingdom of David, which continued to be uh, ruled uh, through the line and with the ostensibly the principles of David, they too later were sent into exile. And now we have several hundred years between even the last remnant of Israel. And, you know, there was no Israel. Israel's people were scattered. It didn't look like it was even possible. There was no continuation of this kingdom. And yet here is the declaration, this promised king, the one you probably were given up hope that might ever come. Even if you would kind of cling to that, you just operated as if it wasn't. All of this time of waiting, this time has now arrived. The king has come. The promised king in the line of David, the one who will reign forever and ever, the one who will reign in wisdom and with justice and with grace. This is Christ the Lord. That's the the signal of saying Jesus is the son of David. It is the fulfillment of the promise. Now, one of the things that we need to take from that is because this season of Advent is one that we're called to not only just to remember, but it's also a season of of waiting, of anticipation. Relatively short time, because we have short attention spans, I suspect, because we're only going to be waiting for four weeks until Christmas Day. And so the season of Advent begins four weeks prior to that. There's four Sundays in the season of Advent. And we're to prepare ourselves, looking forward to Christmas. And in some senses, looking forward to Christmas the same way your kids are. Is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas yet? We ought to have that same longing for what Christmas represents, not necessarily just for the day, but for the birth, for the coming of the the promised king. Now, whatever is going on in your life that is occupying your attention, that may be kind of eroding your sense of excitement and and expectation, it is nothing nothing compared to what would take place if this was hundreds of years of frustration and setback and erasure of every seeming visible sign that God's promises would come true. And yet, here is the declaration. God, no matter what is going on, is still at work to be faithful to his promises to bless the people who belong to him. And so in a season of waiting, no matter what's going on in your life, this is a symbol to you that you have reason for. Then we have the the name here, the the son of Abraham. And it's important that we recognize that it was to Abraham uh, that God entered into a covenant. 
And to Abraham, as part of that covenant, God made a promise. He said, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And through you, I will bless the nations. Now, what's being announced here is that that promise is coming true. That through the line of Abraham, one of Abraham's descendants would be the ultimate blessing, the one who would bless people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that was that was happening in, in the person of Jesus Christ. That has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. But we need to step back for a second and think about who is this Abraham guy? Abraham came from pagan origins. He is the, the father of Israel. There was no Israel for him to be adopted into. He chose him from among the nations. It wasn't because he was necessarily seeking God. We get the idea from where he lived and everything else. Uh, they had good reputation. They had been successful in what they had done. But God chose him simply because he chose him and says to you, I'm going to make these promises, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire earth. But he didn't. It was nothing in Abraham himself, either in character or in his origin, that would suggest that he had earned this distinction. And so it's a reminder to us that God's blessing is not just for a select few people who meet particular characteristics and qualifications, but God will do what God is going to do. And he made that promise through Abraham. And then if you look through this genealogy that follows uh, after Abraham in, in the portion of the 14 names that follow uh, Abraham, one of the things that you're going to notice is there is a there are included in that name a list of non-Jewish people. You know, among them, Rahab and, and Ruth, they were not Jewish people, and yet they were part of the genealogy. They were part of those who God was going to bless. Uh, and, 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 through, and through these particular, he would bless the world, even though they were not part of the people of God. They, they became part, but that was not their origin. And if you look into the stories and in the ones from Abraham, you can check out enough of the many of their stories in the latter part of the book of Genesis and the patriarchs. And one of the things you're going to find is there are some unsavory individuals that are listed here. People that you would not invite to your Christmas party. Or if you did invite them, people are going to wonder, why are you friends with people like this? If we look at it with our present lenses, it's no different than before. Some of their antics are in there to point out these these people are messed up and their lives are quite messy. But their inclusion in this list is good news for us because it's a reminder to us what the Apostle Paul would later very succinctly say, Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And it doesn't matter when we look at the list of Abraham, it doesn't matter what your background is, what nation you come from, it doesn't matter how you have failed in the past, no matter how egregious, how well known it is, or whether how uh, concealed it may be. That is not a disqualification to you. We celebrate the season, the birth of Jesus Christ, and for anyone who is to... Trust in him, not believe that he was born, but trust in what he was born for, which is to go to the cross in order to uh, to take the sin that he had identified with to death and then rise again to set us free so that we would be able to be identified with him. So what, why are these names here? And particularly, what are the, what's significant about these 
two particular names, son of David, son of Abraham. And what does that mean for us today? Now, one of the things that it's important that we recognize is uh, that it is there for hope. That's part of what the season, but that's part of the gospel message, part of all seasons. One of the things, if, if you're not aware of this, uh, and, and check me out on this, but the beginning of the message of, of Matthew uh, is, Matthew begins and ends with a promise. Uh, Jesus is the promise through whom the people of every tribe and tongue and nation are blessed. And then at the end, Jesus commissions his disciples, you and me who are followers of Jesus Christ, uh, to go take the message of Jesus Christ to people of every nation and to make disciples of them, help the people to do that. It begins with a promise. It begins with the promise, I have come. It begins with the promise, I will never leave you and forsake you. It begins with the fulfillment of the promise, which is outlined in the genealogy, that God had made this promise and he has been true to his word and he has brought the blessing. And it goes with a commission for you and I to take that very message to every place that we are able to go so that those that have yet to hear will also have the opportunity to hear. So there is hope that is there, is embedded within uh, this message and even within this list of people. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is to take some time this week and ask God to put his finger on whatever it is in your life that is holding you back, whether it is... Too much water is under the bridge, too much difficulty, not enough evidence that God is doing what he promised to do, and ask him to identify that, because it's, it's important. Find out and ask yourself, what is it that the enemy can you know, kind of push, push you over and say, you know, you're no good. And God will never give somebody like you. Or maybe the message that you hear in your head is, well, maybe, you know, because of Jesus, God will forgive you, but he'll never really care for you. I, I want you to think about the names of the people and, and their histories that are in this list and say, that's a lie. Because if God was able to forgive and to redeem and to use people like this, he is able to forgive he is able to redeem, and he's able to use you. You are not disqualified, and sometimes we need to hear that. Not just nod and say, yeah, I understand, but we really need to wrestle with that, deal with whatever our failures and whatever our faults and whatever is happening around us is causing uh, the erosion of, of our trust and of our faith. But for us to really benefit from that, we also need to recognize what I believe is also embedded here, not just as a message of hope, but as a message that gives us a foundation for our identity and our identity, who we are, who we are, particularly as we are in relationship to Jesus Christ, the one who has promised here, is what enables us to appropriate the benefits that give us hope in the first place. See, it's one thing to pass out a message. You know, if I read uh, about somebody that won the lottery, if it's somebody I know, that's great. If it's somebody I don't know, it's still great. I just don't care. Um, it doesn't affect me. So the issue is relationship and then identity related to that relationship. And the same is true for the issue of hope. We sing. The whole world is singing songs of hope during the season. But the peace that comes with that hope only comes for those who understand that it belongs to them. And we only understand if it belongs to them if we see ourselves, we identify ourselves as those to whom God is making that peace. And in this list, one of the things that we see is a foundation for identity. And that's a very important thing 
It may not be an issue for you, but it is an issue for, for many, many people. Because we live in a, in a culture right now that is obsessed with identity, but is quite uncertain as to how we are to go about identifying ourselves. I read a number of articles over the past couple of weeks that were related to this whole issue of identity. Uh, there was one that I, the, the beginning of it caught my attention. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, but the, the woman who wrote the article's name is, is Brittany Yasuda-san. If you know Brittany, please apologize for me. Um, but here's how what she begins her article. It says this, and her article is called Your Identity in Christ, How God Sees You. Our culture is very interested in the journey of discovering individual identity. Personality tests, dream assessments, even BuzzFeed quizzes are available everywhere you look. It seems like everyone is searching for something to tell them who they are and where they belong and how they relate to the world. You can look for your identity anywhere. But followers of Jesus Christ are called to follow, find their identity in him. And she's touching on a very real thing here. We are told that we need to figure out our identity. I read another survey that said 91% of Americans believe this, this statement. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. In other words, the best way to figure out who you are, to make your identity, is to look inside your own And I suspect that 91% of Americans, I, I assume not everyone here is part of the 9%. And even those who find that maybe not quite convincing, we're, we're so inundated with that message that it begins to have an effect on us. And so as we kind of wonder, who, who am I and where do I belong and, and how am I supposed to relate to my neighbors and, and the people in this world? We do need to kind of know who we are. What are our roots? What are our What's our foundation? What is fundamentally, fundamentally, who am I? And that question is not only important for our functioning, but it's also important for us to experience the blessings that are promised through Jesus Christ. One of the things we need to recognize, and most of us probably should have experienced this, we haven't already, if we look inside of our own heart as who we are, you know, when I get up tomorrow, I'm going to feel different than I feel today. So, does my identity go with that? We experience different things. We feel different things. And so, therefore, there's no possible way to root our identity in parts and, and how we feel. And that's not even factoring in what the Bible tells us about our heart. Your heart is deceitful and beyond and, and, and is, is beyond all measure, and you're not going to be able to figure it out or adapt for it. Our hearts lie to us. Even as redeemed Christians, we still have that problem. Because we're still dealing with brokenness and sin in our lives. So looking inside doesn't tell us anything. Well, we can look externally. And because culturally, not just now, but for a long time, we find our identity, most of us in some way or shape or form, in our family roots, uh, perhaps in the college that we went to, um, the degree that you have, the job, the work that you do, the amount of money that you have, the clubs, a number of external sources of our identity. And I'm not suggesting that those things are in themselves wrong, because who you are uh, it, 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 and how people identify you and recognize you, certainly those are, are components. But they are about as significant to your true core identity as the clothes you are wearing today 
Most of you will recognize the people sitting next to you, even if you see them next week and they're not wearing the same thing. It doesn't mean that those things are unimportant. It means that they are not the essence. They are not the foundation. And if they were, then we would have a problem. As another author wrote this week that I I read is, you know, so if you were a banker, but your bank closes down, do you now cease to exist? You still have an identity. Rather crassly, he also said, if you are a husband and your wife runs off with her golf instructor, are you no longer existing? Because you're no longer a husband. And so there's external standards by which we use for our identity. They are not reliable either. And so we can't look in and we can't look outside. So how do we figure out who we are? Well, fundamentally, I think that uh, Brittany, whatever her last name actually is, is correct when she says that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to find our identity in him. And that is good news for us through this list. See, this list of people whose lives were very disparate, different different stories, different backgrounds, different wherever you would fit in within the paradigm that is, is uh, the scope of these people, you're not disqualified. No matter how you have failed, no matter how you have succeeded, you are not disqualified. If you are somebody who seems to be insignificant, now all of a sudden your life is given meaning if you are part of this list because of whom Christ was born. If you are somebody who is considered great in this world, it doesn't mean that you don't do good things, but it also means that you bring it back a notch because the most significant thing about you is the relationship that you have to Jesus Christ. Some of these people were kings. Some of these people were monarchs. Some of these people were powerful. Some of these people were rich. But the most significant thing in in eternity that's recorded about them is they were part of the line to whom Christ belongs. And while the passage here talks about the fact that of whom Christ, uh, of Jesus was born, who was called the Christ, for us who are reading about it for the purpose of Matthew is so that we who are able to hear about this message, this God sent man who would be God, who was God in the flesh, who came into this world, into this brokenness, it's not said of us of whom Christ is born, but it is said for whom, to whom, in whom Christ is born. See, the relationship that you have to Jesus Christ, this one that Matthew is endeavoring to talk about, the one that we celebrate this season, that relationship fundamentally gives you an identity, it gives your life meaning, and it gives you purpose. Now, how does that get carried out? Well, whatever it is that you're called to do for a living, wherever it is that you choose that you are, that you uh, end up living, uh, where uh, the people that you are, uh, your family and the people who are around you and the relationship you have with them, you carry that out. But fundamentally, those are not the shapers of your identity. They may be the, the the, the surface of it, but fundamentally the identity is Christ was born and he is born to those, to, to us. He was born for the world. He was born and those who are resting in him. Identity is found in him. Writer Melissa Kruger writes this, our identity in Christ is a fixed anchor guiding us through the changing seasons of circumstance of our lives. We are not primarily defined by our college degree, material status, the number of children we have or don't have, uh, where we live or the work that we do. Our identity in Christ, it's our identity in Christ that shapes every aspect of our lives. And as we hear this message and we consider to whom Christ was born, we need to recognize that by believing, we are told, Paul writes this later on. If you are in Christ, which happens by faith, trusting in what he would do, not just that he came, but what that he did on the cross, then you're an heir of Abraham. 
So all of a sudden, in one sense, you're part of that line as well, just not the, the, the biological line, but you're part of the family. And you're identified in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that identity is foundational and then gives shape to every other expression of it. And that is good news for us this season. I'm going to wrap up with this because, you know, novelist Cormac McCarthy in his, his novel, No Country for Old Men, says this. There is nothing to set a man's mind at ease like waking up in the morning and not having to decide who you are. There is nothing that will set your mind at ease during this Advent season like waking up tomorrow and not having to figure out who you are. Because of God's grace, who sent his only begotten son into the world, in order that he would assume our brokenness, our degradation, identifying with it, and in the great exchange, he died to that, setting us free, and then giving to us, who by faith, not only receive forgiveness and salvation, we are clothed in his record, his righteousness, his identity. When our identity is in Christ, we have the peace that is proclaimed, regardless of what's going on around us. And that is my hope for me, and my hope for you, during this Advent season, no matter how difficult that may seem at any moment. Father, we pray that through these words uh, and through the promises that are embedded within this passage, not hidden, uh, but embedded within it, that you would grant us the joy of finding the freedom of knowing our identity is foundational because you have given it to us in Christ. And just then the wisdom to not only embrace but to rejoice and to allow all other factors that are used for our identity to become subordinate or even ignored compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus and being known by him. To you be all praise and glory, we pray.